1: JJ and I also want to thank my listeners from around the world never ever give up hope is now heard in over 70 different countries it is a message of hope that the world really wants to hear because it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is it doesn't matter what your financial position is or your educational background every single one of us have had, or are going through problems. We're human. And no one is immune to problems. And we all at some point need that message that there is hope in whatever situation we happen to be going through. And as many of you who have been following this program know that my guests all have phenomenal stories. Stories that sometimes you wonder how they ever survived. But they share not only their story, but also their secrets, their tips, and very often answers for people who are looking for the very same thing that they have to share that's happening in their lives. I've now interviewed over a 100 different guests, and each and every one of them has had this message. It's a message of hope, it's a message of encouragement, and it gives coping skills and tips. So I thank you so much for listening. And I thank each one of my guests for making this show what it is. Also, I want to put out there that if you have a story that you feel would be of interest to my listeners, please message me and let me hear your story because everybody has a story to tell. And we never know when we share our story how it is going to affect someone who may be going through the same thing. So if you have a story to share, let me know. We'd love to hear it. With me today is Anita Brooks. Anita motivates others to dynamic breakthroughs. We've all had times in our lives when we've needed a dynamic breakthrough. Blending mind, heart, body, and spirit She is an inspirational business and life coach, an international speaker, a common trauma expert, which she's going to explain that, and she also shares that message, Hope. She is a multi-published, award-winning author. Her Amazon best-selling book, which is one that I think we're going to talk about quite a bit today is entitled Getting Through What You Can't Get Over. A couple other of her titles are First Hired, Last Fired, How to Become Irreplaceable in Any Job Market. Another book entitled Death Defied, Life Defined, A Miracle Man's Memoir. Welcome, Anita.
2: Thank you, Carol. It is a true pleasure to be
1: here. When you wrote your book entitled Getting Through What You Can't Get Over, to me, that meant or means that there were probably many times in your own life when you needed to find answers and how to get through your own traumas. Is that correct?
2: Absolutely. Actually, the title of that book came as a result of having walked through some very dark valleys. And I heard myself say to someone who had come to me for some encouragement because they were going through a trial at that time. And I heard myself say to that person, you know, there are some things in life we will never get over, but we can get through. And as soon as I heard myself say it, I thought, (laughs) my goodness, that is a book title.
1: That is so cool. Well, tell us about it. Tell us about your life. And what you went through, whatever you want to share from your childhood or whatever you would like to share with us, we want to hear it.
2: Well, you know, the thing that for me, I think like many people, I had a worst fear. You know, there's this thing that will weigh on us and we try not to think about it, we avoid it. But deep down in our, either our subconscious or periodically it even seeps into our conscious mind that fear crops up. And for me, it was the subject of adultery. Some people fear cancer, they fear death, things of that nature. That was not mine. My father, when I was a child, uh, had had an affair, and he walked out of our family. And unfortunately for us, when he did that, um, he took the road that... Many do where they essentially go on to start a new family. And and just practically, there's not enough mm-hmm. room for both in their lives. As a child, or I should say a teenager at that time, I didn't fully understand that. As an adult, of course, I understand that much better now. But the sense of abandonment and rejection mm. that I felt in betrayal was huge. So then when I got married... The greatest fear that I had in my life is that my husband might do something like that. So for years, I I tried my best to be the perfect wife, but unfortunately, that wasn't enough. And so what happened was my husband, I did find out in 1999, uh, had been involved in an affair. And it was not an overnight stand, which... To be honest with you, people, you know, they try to weigh the differences and Mm -hmm. make better this or that. But frankly, I don't think any kind of betrayal is any better. You're always going to find some reason why for you this was the worst case scenario. But when that happened to me, I had to confront my worst fear. And it devastated me. And in reality, um, for a time, I battled deep, deep, deep clinical depression, even to the point of feeling very suicidal. I mean, I understand what can drive a human being to their knees to that point where they think it's not that they necessarily want to kill themselves, but they just want the pain to go away. And they're so desperate that they would do almost anything to be free of that. And so I, I've walked that journey. So when I say that I've been through dark valleys I really do mean that. Um, I went through physical symptoms. Uh, I had anxiety attacks where I was having a very difficult time sleeping at night. My nerves were so bad that I had to get a prescription to prevent me from vomiting numerous times a day. Hmm. It's like 17 pounds in less than two weeks. It was insane. And unless a person has been through that kind of betrayal or that kind of a trauma, you know, it's easy to say what you think you would do. But then when you get there, and you have to walk that reality, it, it's crazy um, how you truly react to that. So I was thrown into a deep abyss for a while. While I was in that abyss, And if any of your listeners have any, whether their situation was similar to mine or very different, but if they've ever been in that clinical depressive abyss, they'll understand what it's like when I describe how difficult it was to even get out of bed in the morning or to take a shower, uh, to eat something. All of those things were challenges, things that I would take for granted any other time. But for some reason, Um, I had a friend who invited me to go to a one day women's conference and it was at a hospital in St. Louis. I live in Missouri. And we were going to go see a woman who was a Holocaust survivor. And I wasn't really in the mood to do this, but my friend was really urging me to go. And so I went ahead and agreed. At the last minute, my friend had to cancel. She had an emergency. To this day, I can't exactly explain why I went by myself or even how I did it because I was kind of in that zombie state
1: that uh-huh.
2: you when you're traumatized. <clears throat> but I drove to this conference and I sat and I watched this woman named Dr. Edith Eager. And she was five foot nothing, 73 <laughs> years old at the time, but she was a spitfire. And I remember sitting there and thinking as she described some of the horrors that she had experienced. Mm in Auschwitz where she was a prisoner, thinking to myself, you know, I've never went through anything like that. Hmm. Look at her. Look at her smile. Look at her laugh. And I wondered how that could be. Well, wouldn't you know that I got a miracle that day? Because at the lunch break they had a a meet and greet. So everyone could line up and they could come through the line. It was very quick, you know, Mm -hmm. but you could shake Edie's hand and you know she would say hello and then the next person would come behind. Well, there were over 300 people that day and I have no explanation as to how this really happened. <laughs> Except when I got to Edie, I'll never forget, she leaned close, she was sitting in a chair and I was standing, but she kind of leaned up and she was looking at me with these piercing blue eyes <laughs> and I put my hand out to shake hers and then she put her other hand on top of mine and slapped it. And she goes, "We must meet." She had this really strong Hungarian <laughs> accent. And you know, I did this kind of looking over my shoulder. you talking to me?" And she goes, "You must come and have breakfast with me. We must meet in the morning. God has spoken." Now, I'm going to be honest. I didn't hear God say anything, and I was like. You know, well, you know, I live almost two hours away and I'm kind of giving her, you know, this this whole excuse thing. And she, goes, <laughs> you must come. She was adamant. <laughs> so I did. I drove home that evening, but I got up the next morning and I went and met this woman and I'll never forget sitting across the table from her. By the way, breakfast lasted for like six hours. <laughs> and she began to tell me things that I had never heard. Um, Holocaust survivors ever describe things that were so horrific. Mm. And she was a 16 year old girl when she and her sister and her parents were loaded up onto a cattle car and they had no idea where they were going. They arrived at Auschwitz. They were put into a single file line. And as they hours later finally got to the head of that line, there was a man sitting in a chair and he would point right or left And he pointed she and her sister one direction and her parents in another. Oh,
0: my
1: word.
2: So she ran after her parents, and she was gripping her mother, and she was crying. And the man got out of her chair, and he walked over, and he assured her, and he said, we're just sending you to the showers. You'll be together again Mm -hmm. a few hours. So that did call Meaty and her sister. And so they went through, and they got cleaned up. That was not a fun thing, though. It's not like a shower you and I would ever want. But several hours later, as they were in the prison yard, the girls had been looking for their parents, couldn't find them anywhere, and they were just crying together, huddling up. And an old man, a fellow prisoner, walked up, and he said, little girls, why do you cry? And Edie said, I told him, our mama, our papa, we've looked, and we cannot find them anywhere. And the man pointed up to the smokestacks, and he said, There's your mama, there's your papa.
1: Oh my word.
2: Killed them. And as I sat there and I listened to Edie tell this story, I, I still kept thinking about my situation and I thought, how could she survive something like that and yet still have the twinkle in her eye that she had and still have that laughter that bubbled up so easily from her soul. And I wanted that so desperately. But then she shared a secret with me. She she asked me a question. She said, are you familiar with Psalm 23? And I said, well, yes. And she said, there is a line in there that says, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And she said, do you not feel as if you are walking through the mm. shadow of death right now. And I, I just began to sob. And I said, that's exactly how I feel. You know, I feel as if my marriage has been murdered, as if there has mm. been a death that's taken place. And she said, I want you to take note. It does not say slow down. It does not say stop. It does not say pitch a tent. It does not say build a house. It says walk. And when you feel as if you do not have the strength or the energy to take another step, I want you to remember my face, and I want you to walk anyway. Powerful. It was so powerful, Carol. It it changed my whole perspective in that moment. And then a couple of hours later, when I took her to the airport, we were standing outside of, of Lambert Airport in St. Louis, and she reached out and she grabbed my shoulders. And she said, you have a wounded little girl inside of you. And that little girl needs a mother. And she pointed and she very gently touched my chest. And she said, you be her mother.
1: <laughs> mm, how beautiful. That
2: was amazing. And when mm-hmm. I, I, I drove home that day, that very day, I remember thinking to myself, I can choose from this moment on to love as if I have never been hurt. And I made that commitment from that day and it changed my life. And it's, I'm not saying that life became perfect. It did Uh not. I had to fight. I had to scrape. There were many days I absolutely did not feel like taking that next step. But I did remember eating. And I remembered the things that she had been through. And I remembered that it was my choice whether I stopped or whether I pitched a tent or built a house. It was my choice whether or not I picked up my foot. And I took that step anyway. And I did. And one of the things that she had told me that day was, if you put enough steps in front of each other, one day you will look up and you will notice that you have suddenly stepped back into the light. And you will be able to laugh again. And I remember the day when I caught myself laughing. And at first I almost felt guilty. It had been so long Mm. since I had done it. But then I remembered what you said. And I thought, this is it. This is my moment. I have stepped out of the valley back into the light. And I can laugh again.
1: Well, there's a few things that I'd like to ask you about that story before we continue. Um, Definitely is impactful. Um, You said a lot of things that I know would really, it's touching my heart. The way you shared the story, of course, I see Edie's face. I can understand what you must have been through in that six hours that you spent with her, all the various emotions and and grasping a new understanding, how life-changing that moment was. Amazing. It has been said that each of us have seven people in our lifetime that we will influence and that seven people who have influenced us and she definitely is one of those who is an influencer in your life because she made a difference
2: she absolutely did and one of the beautiful things is i'm getting to pass edie's yes. on
1: because
2: yes when I do interviews like this and, and there are listeners who hear about Edie and and the power of her wisdom. Mm-hmm. But also in my book Getting Through What You Can't Get Over, that story in even more in depth is the opening chapter of that because it mm. is so much something that I want to share with as many people as I can because we are living in a hurting world. I mm-hmm. know that healing is possible.
1: That's it in a nutshell healing is possible i think very often when you are living in a state of hopelessness you think that it's not possible and pain is relative i know that as a coach you must see this a lot you know what what you may regard as as just as you did when you were talking with edie you look at yourself and you think well if she got through that you know what's wrong with me that i can't get through this i'm sure you must address that in your coaching, do you not? Because pain is relative.
2: It is very much relative. And we each define pain differently. You know, and I work with some multimillionaires, I mean some very powerful mm-hmm. women and men. And I can tell you that there is one prevailing theme among all of us and that is that we are human. We have problems. And even the most powerful people in the world have those pains that maybe are relative to them, but no one else sees because especially in their position, they feel as if they must wear the facade (laughs) and the weight of that facade is something that makes the pain exacerbated for them because they feel lonely in their pain. Yes. And that loneliness is so almost, I, I almost want to say more painful than what the origin is for them. Because when you don't have a place to vent, I always, I tell people this human beings are like volcanoes. If you have a volcano and there is magma at that core that is building and building and the pressure is growing in that. And there is no place for the occasional vent of that steam and that pressure, ultimately there is going to be a massive explosion. Hmm. And I see this often with the people that I'm coaching, especially with the people at the top leadership, because they're that volcano that they don't, they don't want anyone to see a crack or a fissure in them. So what they do is they try to stuff all their emotions. Well, when you're stuffing all of that down, every time you stuff, It's only landing on top of the last thing you put there.
1: (laughs) That's a very good
2: analogy. (laughs) Yeah, so eventually, I mean, kaboom. Mm -hmm. And it oftentimes, and it splatters on everyone around them. It's going to, you know, people who think that work and home don't affect each other really are deluding themselves. You know, you are not going to be able to leave your problems at the door. I don't care how hard you try. So work affects home, home does affect work. And that's something I speak at a lot at conferences, you know, so oftentimes in the workplace, whenever I come in as a coach, you know, if I'm dealing with the leadership or I'm dealing with the staff or some of both, we need to get to these core issues, this core pain that so many of these people are dealing with, because until you get past that emotion that they have regarding their pain, you can't get to a place of productivity and profitability. You've got to be able to deal with the things that are weighing on their spirits and their souls. Otherwise, they're going to explode like a volcano.
1: You said something that I'd like to you to address as well before we continue with uh, your story. And that is, how do you tell people not to feel guilty for feeling happy? <laughs> Do you understand what I'm asking? I
2: do understand. Okay. I, that's, you hear me chuckle. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about that. Well, one thing I will say, I rarely tell people what to do. Usually what I will do is I will ask them why they feel guilty. And that, and, and that has happened numerous times mm-hmm. in my experiences. Because here's what I find is oftentimes... People don't slow down enough to consider the why behind the what. Why do I feel guilty? And when you ask them the question, it's almost suddenly like you'll see them pull back and go, oh, why do I? And then you're able to have a conversation to get to whatever that problem is that's causing that block that is preventing them from embracing their happiness, You know, sometimes we need to give ourselves permission to be happy, but we don't know that we can give ourselves permission. We almost need someone else to come alongside us and say, I permit you to give yourself permission to be happy. (laughs) But you have to be able to have the conversation about the why behind the what.
1: What do you think about um, people who in the same scenario, who feel guilty about being happy when they're around people who have just gone through a traumatic experience or um, even a a death of a spouse or something like that. Like where is that fine line and how do you cross it and how do you encompass their unhappiness? Do you understand? Like is Mm -hmm. there, how, how would you address that?
2: I do you know and this is something I see so often you know one thing we as human beings commonly are fix it people yes fix people but when someone is grieving and grief comes in many forms we do not have to lose someone to death for there to be grief involved you can right. grieve if you you are dealing with a chronic illness you can grieve if you've had if you're having issues with in your marriage or with your children we we grieve many things But if someone is in obvious grief, one of the worst things that we can do is try to cheer them up. One of my favorite Mm. um, old proverbs says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on an open wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Remember, it's not your job to cheer them up. Compassion, respect, respect a listening ear is huge. Yes. Just showing that you care is one of the greatest gifts that you can give another person without trying to fix them. You know, Edie did not try to fix me Mm -hmm. that day when I sat down across from her. She asked me, I'll never forget the way she worded it. She said, tell me what is this pain that is etched in your eyes? One, just acknowledging that another human being is hurting is a gift that you give them. So many people want to avoid, pull back, ignore, act like it doesn't exist. It's the elephant in the room. We all know it's there. But I think many people avoid because they're afraid, oh, if I ask, I'm going to have to listen to this long, drawn-out story. But here's the thing. Oftentimes when a person, much like that volcano, is allowed to vent, what you find is you'll see almost an immediate somewhat of a lift in their spirit because they've gotten some of that emotional gunk out. They've been able to express themselves. And oftentimes what we avoid because we think it's going to cost us something actually the avoidance is what costs us because it costs us potentially a more deepened relationship. It may be costs us greater efficiency or productivity at work. So many in leadership want to avoid the problems of the people who work for them. And one of my messages is don't avoid their problems. Acknowledge them. One of the top three reasons that employees have given in studies for why they stay and are loyal is because they feel as if their employer cares about them on a personal level. Interesting. Hmm. Yes. And it's huge. But instinct says run the other way. But I'm telling you that at least in my experience and from what I have seen in observing and working with other people, the most powerful thing that we can do is actually step into that with compassion, again, ask questions. Don't try to fix them. Don't try to cheer them up. Just simply let them know that you care.
1: One of the quotes that I absolutely abhor, and I've, it's not as popular now as it was a couple decades ago, and that is, don't worry, be happy. Mm-hmm. And I thought, if, when someone is really hurting and you say that to them, it's like slapping them in the face and telling them, you know, they're wrong. Yes. They, they need to, you know, they need to put their head in the sand and, 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 you know, put on this front. And we all do. We all have to in order to live in society and not walk around, you know, with tears rolling down our cheeks or, or an attitude of, you know, deep depression or whatever. But when someone says that to you, it's a slap in your face that there's something wrong with you. And you don't need to hear that. Would you agree with that?
2: I absolutely agree with that, Carol. And we have to remember, no one wants to feel bad. Mm -hmm. If given a choice, you don't think that that person wants to be happy or feel happiness. Mm -hmm. It's just that either a couple of things. One, they are going through some type of a mourning process. And sometimes for people, that mourning process is very long. For some people, it's Mm short. We can't define for someone else what that time span should look like. Some people get stuck in the grieving process, however, and sometimes that can go all the way back to childhood. You know, for myself, I did not realize it until I faced my worst fear that I had gotten stuck in the grieving process from my, chi- from my childhood with my father. In a strange circular way, by being forced to face my worst fear I not only have healed from that as an adult, but it took me back and made me face that stuckness that I had in my grief in the past, and I was able to heal from that as well. So what you're doing
1: in your coaching services is you're helping people move forward. You're not just coaching them and giving them advice or whatever it may be, you know, the pits of despair, financial hardship, or, you know, many other other reasons that we have life coaches. But you sound to me like you are somebody who is giving them hope in whatever situation they happen to be in and, and coping skills. Is that correct?
2: Yes, it is. And And what I find is so often, especially in business settings, because I do inspirational coaching for businesses and individuals, but in business settings so often, of course, the leadership is always looking at the bottom line, you know, that's Mm -hmm. what they want to start with. And that's not a problem. I can do that practical work and and no big deal. However, if you miss the aspect of this emotional side of things, because you're dealing with human beings. Yes. If you miss that, then you've thrown a Band-Aid on something. And, you know, if you throw a Band-Aid on an open wound and you don't clean that out and you don't disinfect it, Mm. that's what that's probably going to do. Fester. Fester and grow. It's going to spread. And that's what I see happen in businesses on a regular basis is if you don't deal with those things and you try to slap a Band-Aid on it, you do the quick fix it then that festers and it grows and it becomes a staph infection that spreads throughout your entire organization. And what I have found, you know, I remember one um, gentleman that I know, and by personality, I'm a certified personality trainer. And so by personality, this gentleman is very much, you know, very little emotion expressed. (laughs) And when people come to work, you know, it's just, you know, buy the book and black and white and, you know, do your bullet points and let's get it done and that kind of thing. And I remember one time I was doing a session with he and several other business owners from around the country. And I had shared with them the value of really showing appreciation to your employees and how much more you gain from that and how much that affects your bottom line. And I had shared with them how one exercise I have found is just taking five minutes with an employee and going and asking them, you know, how are you doing? Can you tell me one thing you really appreciate about work today and one thing that drives you crazy about it? (laughs) You don't have to spend a lot of time, five or ten minutes. And do this, you know, once a, a week or once a month, whatever your abilities are. And I told him, I said, I have done this repeatedly and you cannot believe the responses that I get from people. I had one woman write me a three-page letter thanking (laughs) me for uh, showing interest in her as a person and in her personal life. And all I asked her was, what's driving you crazy about your job at the moment? And what do you really appreciate about your job at the moment? That's all I asked. Three-page letter. (laughs) Well, This man, I will tell you in our uh, session that we did, we were doing a two day uh, intensive came up to me afterward and he said, okay, I, you shared a lot of things with me in the past that have really worked well. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't buy into this at all, (laughs) but because it's you and I trust you, I'm going to try it. Okay, great. Well, A few months later, we met again, and he shared with the entire group. (laughs) I didn't even hardly get get us started, and he raised his hand. He said, can I share something before we get too involved? I said, absolutely. He said, I just have to tell everyone, when you encouraged us to go and ask our employees what drove them crazy about work, what they appreciated about their job, I thought you were insane. I thought I don't have time for this. I'm already too busy as it is. But because it was you, I did it. He goes, I'm blown away by the results. Wow. He said, my morale is out of the roof. He said, our profits are soaring. He said, my employees, he said, you know, just seeing the smiles on their face. And he said, and what I'm finding is I'm finding it's more pleasant to be at work now. And it's it really, it is those mm, that's little, interesting, little, yeah. exactly that make a difference. But when you acknowledge people instead of trying to ignore or avoid, mm. it transforms not just our relationships, but it transforms every level of our being. Well, tell us about your coaching service. I work with a lot of different uh, organizations. I've done like medical and health field. I'm a patient advocate uh, for... Uh, organ transplant, I'm a living donor. And so that's something that has just happened organic. Mm-hmm. I work with hospitality and resort businesses. So really the gamut, I mean, I probably work banking, insurance, you name it. But what happens for me is it's word of mouth. Someone either hears me on an interview, like okay. Okay. they they contact me, they email me, um, or someone refers me. I get a lot of referrals.
1: Okay. So, in other words, what I'm asking you is if people, as a result of what you're sharing here today, contact you, you would be able to set something up with them? Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. That's good. Now, one thing that I read in your bio that I really enjoyed was was your philosophy, which says, if that's the worst thing that happens today, it's really been a great day. Do you want to share a little bit about that?
2: Yes, I will. That one came from having a near-death experience. In 1997, I did donate a kidney, and the transplant went beautifully. Everything was great. But a couple of days afterward, they had given me an epidural, and a couple of days after the transplant, they needed to take the epidural out, and they were going to put me on a pain medicine called Dilaudid. Now, when you go through the testing phase to become an organ donor, you get asked, I mean, so many times whether or not you're allergic to anything. And my answer always was, not that I'm aware of. Mm. I had never taken Dilaudid. Well, Dilaudid almost killed me. And when you come that close to death, and especially as a young person, I was 33 years old at that time. So when you come that close to death and you survive, it really changes your thinking and it opens your eyes to a lot of things about living. And so one of the things that I came away with is if that's the worst thing that happens today, it's been a really great day. (laughs) And I cannot tell you how many times I will repeat that to myself in a week, especially if I have deadlines and pressures and You know, or technical difficulties, you know, with my computer or something like that. I have to slow down, take that deep breath and say, you know, if that's the worst thing that happens today, it's been a really great day.
1: Well, that's just like pain is relative. Yes. Because, you know, no matter what happens, we have to keep that in perspective that things could be worse.
2: Yes. Yes. And that's the thing. You know, things could always be worse with us. And there's always someone who's probably going yes. to something worse than us in that moment.
1: Absolutely.
2: One of the things that I think about, too, today that I didn't think previous to that was how many people in this moment in time, as I'm sitting here maybe, you know, getting myself all worked up over some kind of stressful situation, how many people in this moment are holding the hand of a loved one
1: mm. as they're
2: getting ready to pass from this life? How many people just got that worst case scenario diagnosis? Yes. How many people just got word that their worst fears have come true? And when you look at it from that light and you begin to express that kind of gratitude in your life, I'm a big proponent of keeping a written gratitude journal
1: Mm -hmm.
2: that will change you in beautiful ways but also what it does is it draws other people to you because we all want to be around people who exude hope. That's right. And I'm one of those people that I'm just so blessed to have come through some crazy things. You know, I mean, I've, there's some dramatic stories of things that I've been through, but I am that person who laughs easily. I do smile often. My gratitude is genuine. It's authentic. It's authentic. But I also have the gift that I did not have before of deep compassion for other people who are hurting. And I am so grateful for that. And because of that, I would not trade anything that I've been through.
1: I almost said that exact same thing. I totally relate. And if I'm relating, there are many others who are as well. Our attitude is what gets us through. Not what we've gone through. It's the attitude going through it. And the the secret word is through it.
2: Yes, not over it. That's right. And one of the worst things that we can say to a hurting person is, Oh, well, time heals all wounds. <laughs> we'll get over this. Well, you know what? If you've lost a child, that's right. You're not going to get over it. That's right. If you were sexually abused, you're not going to get over it. But you can get through it. I will never get over my husband's adultery, but I have gotten through it. And I was very blessed that my husband was remorseful and he invested himself into fighting for our marriage and for us. That is not always the case. That's right. My heart just robs for those men and women who tried so hard in their marriage, but their spouse still walked away. I saw that with my dad. But at the same time, I know... That if you get two people who really resolve and determine that they're going to give it everything, not 50-50, they're going to give it 100-100, anything is possible.
1: I totally agree. Anything is possible. The human spirit is amazing. Yes, it is. Could you give us a synopsis of your three books in a nutshell?
2: Sure. Well, getting through what you can't get over, there are 12 different chapters and they deal with 12 different themes. So uh, everything from a debilitating um, accident, there was a woman whose story that I tell that was crushed at work and she deals daily with chronic physical pain, excruciating pain. I deal with childhood sexual abuse, identity issues, adultery, and of course, death. Okay, In book, among other things and financial issues. But getting through what you can't get over. Those are the things that are common traumas. These happen to many, many people. And they are things that so often well meaning people will come alongside and either try to cheer them up or tell them, well, you'll get over this eventually. But the fact is, they won't get over it, but they can get through it. And so what I've done in this book is really tried to give um, both a spiritual comfort, but also some very practical guides at the end of each chapter. I have some practical things there because what I have found is there are some things too that they're so overwhelming to us. If we think about trying to take it one day at a time, that's just too much. We need things to help us get through one moment. Uh-huh, uh-huh. and that's why I wrote the book. The other book, uh, well, the other two books that I've written, uh, my first book is First Hired, Last Fired, How to Become Irreplaceable in the Job Market. And I wrote that book because I see so many things that are common patterns among people who have difficulty either maintaining a job or getting promoted or getting what they think they want from their work life. But they're very they're simple and, and easy to apply things, but oddly enough, they're things again that we often avoid as human beings. So this is just one of those books that I've written to try to inspire people to show them that they can thrive at work and they can really get the things that they desire. And then Death Defied, Life Defined, a Miracle Man's Memoir, is a true story of a man who had both a heart and kidney transplant in 2014 in Mayo Clinic and as one of his doctors told me he died at least two medically confirmed times. Huh. He has a fascinating story and just so many life principles and and you know he and I have so many things in common on those levels and he had that wake up call. So one of the beautiful things I love about this book is because people can read his story And they can get that wake up call and they can glean those insights that I was referring to earlier without having to go through the very, very difficult journey that he walked.
1: Well, all three sound phenomenal, really touched my heart. I'm sure that it's touched others. I know that people are relating with what you're saying. I applaud you for your attitude for how you are sharing other people's stories as well and not just making it about Anita. I think that's always wonderful to see because that's a motivation as well for people realizing that, well, you're just somebody special. No, you don't have to be special to have a story. Everybody has a story and everybody needs to share that story. You have a little uh, saying about that too, don't you?
2: Yes, we all Every one of us has a story. Many of us have multiple stories. And one of the greatest gifts that we can give another human being is to show interest in their story and to really listen to them. You know, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. (laughs) And I so appreciate you pointing out the fact that I don't just focus on myself. I don't do what I do for me. I don't do what I do because of me. I do what I do because I'm blessed And I have a responsibility, a wonderful responsibility that I'm so grateful for to go out and encourage and share with other people. And as I I say, I do motivate other people to dynamic breakthroughs because I'm telling you, if I can do it, you can do it.
1: And on that note, I want to thank you for what you did share today this is the beginning. I certainly think that you should come back in a few months and talk some more, because you have uh, just a garden of things that we can glean from. And I am anxious to see what other things that you can you can share with us. Um, it's it's been really really great having you here, Anita. I so appreciate your your attitude, your sharing. Your clarity, your compassion, your empathy, it all came through loud and clear. And you're the kind of person that we need to
2: listen to. Oh, thank you so much, Carol. I'm very, very humbled. Thank you.
1: So on that, we will say goodbye. And again, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Never, Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of 5 stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.